episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Gieselinde Kuipers and today I'm talking to Dr. Dieter van der Broek of the Free University Brussels. Welcome, Dieter. Hi. Hi. Can you briefly introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi there, my name is uh, Dieter van der Broek. I'm a professor of sociology at the VUB, the Free University of Brussels. I personally learned the sociological trait as a an undergraduate, first in Brussels and Berlin, and then later on as a postgraduate doctoral researcher in Brussels and, and Manchester. Um, in the past, I've mainly worked around issues related to the sociology of the body, I think about which we'll talk a bit. But overall, I tend to have quite eclectic, maybe even somewhat random intellectual taste. I'm profoundly interested in sociological theory. I'm currently finishing a book on developments in contemporary sociological theory. Also very much interested in the, the philosophy of sociological methods, firm believer in empirical research. And my current work really focuses on the construction of, of class and, and the class habitus in, in early childhood, trying to understand the ways in which very young or infant social actors start developing a sense of, of, of social structure, start developing notions of, of class and status and, and, and inequality. Other than that, last year I, uh, I founded the um, European Centre for the Study of Culture and Inequality, ECCI, and an international research network aimed at bringing together people from across Europe and even across the Atlantic who are interested in studying the relationship between culture, class, and, and inequality. And I'm happy to say that in the meantime, I was joined by yourself in, in directing this center. And I think this this podcast series is a very, very good way of, of despite the current restrictions in, in intellectual traffic and in, in intellectual contact, we can still um, yeah try to fulfill that mission of, of, of promoting a dialogue between between scholars from, from, from different countries um, thinking about um, issues of class, culture, inequality. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Yes. So thank you. So indeed, this new center is also the place where you will find the readings for this podcast. And also many of the people who are featuring in this podcast are members of this center. Today, we're talking about a topic that uh, you proposed. So can you tell us something about that? I think most people, um, especially especially the aspiring social scientists who might be listening to these podcasts, quite quickly recognize that social inequality plays in, in, in domains like migration, education, the, the labor market, the housing market. But we we often forget that inequality also affects us in, in, in one of the more personal, more intimate aspects of our, our self-identity, and maybe even the most personal and intimate aspect of our, of our identity, namely the relationship with our own body. Yeah, and I think it's it's especially important here that, that sociology shows that what we tend to perceive as individual, as personal, as something over which we have full control, that, that even in that relationship, when we judge our own bodies, when we experience our own bodies, that we do so always, in many ways, through the lens, not just of our own society, but also of our own particular social class. It has always struck me, and having been in academia for a long it has always struck me that academics themselves tend to be uh, quite thin and uh, never talk about this. So I've always been intrigued about this. So before we continue, I would like to ask you, have you ever been on a diet? Have I ever been on a diet? No, <laughs> luckily not. Yeah. Um, getting to that point where I might have to contemplate it. But um, I think, you know, being a, being a man, you can get away with having a, a dad bod at this uh, point in your life. So uh, no, I have not been on a, on a diet. So do you have any idea what your BMI is? Um, yeah, actually I had to... Um, Went to the doctor recently. I have a BMI that 
places me slightly overweight. I think I have a BMI of 26, which should technically place me in the danger zone. Yeah, exactly. Um, need to keep an eye on that. <laughs> have you considered doing anything about that? No, not really. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, it's the, the sedentary lifestyle. The pandemic is not helping. Things. Yeah, so it's so we let's blame the pandemic, right? Yeah, let's blame the pandemic. so many okay. other things right now. Yeah. Absolutely. So we know mm-hmm. that this is something that you can't really ask of people because it's sort of shameful and and very personal. And at the same time, so this is uh, mm-hmm. a topic where really where we judge people very very quickly uh, and very harshly. Also, mm-hmm. so we really tend to blame people for for their dad bots or the lack yep. of it. This is actually the question, right, that you have asked a lot of people. So this is also yeah, what sociologists do. So we ask really, really improper yeah. questions. Improper questions. And, and there's, there's, in fact, an, an interesting methodological point in what, in what you say is that, yes, when people are asked in an interview setting about their, their weight and their height, to calculate things like their BMI, it's interesting to note that people have a tendency to slightly overstate their height and slightly understate their weight. So for today, we're reading uh, three texts, uh, one by yourself, mm-hmm. one by Stephen Menel, and one by Muriel Darmon. And then we have additional readings, so more by Darmon, more by you, and more by Uti Sarpala and her team from Finland. So can you say something about these texts? So why did you choose yeah. them? Why are they important? How are they related to yeah. each other? I think they are related to each other in the sense that they kind of really tackle the relationship between a similar set of themes. So this idea of, of body weight, of, 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 of weight control, this idea of self-discipline, moderation on the one hand, and on the other hand, the role that that social class, class distinction, status plays in, 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 in all of So, for instance, Stephen Mendel's text really looks at the kind of, yeah, the historical development. Um, Muriel Darmon, a famous French sociologist, ethnographer, she looks at how um, daughters from, from French bourgeois families, Parisian bourgeois families, struggle with, with eating disorders, shows how this, this entire idea of self-discipline restraint can, can produce quite pathological consequences. And she does it really through kind of an ethnographic um, approach. And then in my own work, I, I, I tackled very similar things, um, also kind of looking at, you know, how things like weight control, body weight vary in terms of, 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 of social and, and, and class position. But I tend to approach these, these issues from, um, from a more quantitative approach, looking at these things through, through fairly detailed statistical analysis of things like body mass index, height, weight. So it's, it's, it's really three texts that I'll all deal with a similar set of issues, but each from their own kind of um, distinct angle. Yeah, I thought it made for very lively reading. So that was nice also mm-hmm. because they, they were very, very different uh, in many mm-hmm. ways. Uh, so before we move on to the text, we have the fixed question, which is what surprised mm-hmm. you most in today's mm-hmm. text. So what might surprise me most was specifically in both the text by Darmon, but also in Menel a little, is that something that we've seen before um, in the text that we've read. So once you start talking about culture and inequality, it is interesting that sociologists tend to focus on the sort of the top layers. Uh, so it's really about the middle classes and their politics of distinction. So we've seen this when we talked about the cultural practices, the consumption, the production. So it's also really about how middle class and upper middle class and even upper class people tend to sort of look down upon others and try to distinguish themselves. And it's so very, very rare to see the view from the 
from the bottom, so to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really intriguing, specifically here, because because when it comes to to body, it's really, I mean, the, the moralizing that comes with, you know, understandings of control and self-control is really clear. But it, so it's very hard not to have the sense of, you know, these are sort of sociologists, sort of upper middle class people uh, talking mm-hmm. to other upper middle class people about why they look down upon others. And I think about that their becomes, particular problems. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was what struck me today. So what surprised you most? What struck me is if we really look at this, how recent all of this really is. When you look at this modern stigmatization of fatness, this, this celebration of slimness and self-control, this, I mean, initially started in the early early 20th century, but really only kicked off really after the, the, the Second World War. And, and it's, you know, we really only need to go back three, three or four generations to kind of see that, you know, what we consider to be completely self-evident today was far from it, you know, just um, a couple of, 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 of generations ago. And Darmont starts from... Um, a similar sense of a similar sense of, of intellectual puzzlement, you know, you know, how come so many sociologists who, who, who tackle the issue of, of, of the body embodiment, weight control, um, how come they pay so very little attention to what is in many ways a core sociological variable? Yeah, namely social class. And it's very hard to find um, even today, I would say um, it's, uh, it has improved a bit, but especially if you look at work. You know, in the late 20th century, late 90s, early 2000s, um, class and thinking about class wasn't all that developed in relationship to to, to thinking about the body. And, and she does this in the quite particular case of, of, of anorexia nervosa, of eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia to show that really in or to fully understand these, these phenomena, it is important, of course, to look at things like gender. It is important to look at things like age, which which play into this. But it's it's also an eminently class problem. And I think that is something that's partly why I chose this text. I think what Darmon observes in the case of eating disorders can really be generalized to to the way in which sociologists think about the body in, in, in general, and that class wasn't really a, um, a variable that we that we spontaneously um, sought after. Yeah. Yes. So let's discuss each of the texts in mm-hmm. slightly more detail now. So I suggest we go in historical order, which I think is also the order that you started with, starting with Stephen Menel. So he already mm-hmm. said something about why you chose him. Uh, it's a text that's a little actually quite a bit older than uh, than mm-hmm. most of the other texts we've read for the course yeah. so far. Uh, so can you say something about the background of this text? So so I think the first text, as you, as you point out, like, it, it really helps us to kind of historically contextualize, you know, the, the things we're talking about today. Like, where does this come from? You know, like this, this, this has a history. This has a, a, a long-term sociogenesis. And, and it's quite interesting, the title, of the text is on the civilizing of appetite, which is, you know, a nod and a wink to another author that all of us are quite familiar with, namely Norbert Elias, you know, who did the famous author of the, the you know, the, the, the magnum opus, The Civilizing Process, you know, the sixth most influential book in, 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 in world sociology right now, Elias, who kind of traces the the long-term development of, 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 of very basic relationships to our body, the way in which we, you know, which we eat, the way in which we clothe ourselves, the way in which we walk, basic, basic etiquette, who kind of shows that these things are not natural. You know, they, 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 they have a history and that history is itself linked to the, the, the broader history of societies, the way in which social structures evolve, um, um, how the formation of modern states really plays into things like, you know, our eating habits, our, our, our manners at the, at the, at the, at the dinner table, really, 
somebody who who really was the first, I think, you know, in many ways to kind of kind of show the the relevance that that sociology has for understanding the way in which we which we um, treat our bodies. So I think, yeah, Menel really continues in that in in that tradition that if you want to understand, in a sense, the most spontaneous, most visceral sensations of your own body, appetite, disgust, that these things have a history that we you know we have to. We, we've been taught to hate certain things or to love um, others, and um, and appetite really forms no um, no exception to this. So I think what what Manel does, and even though it's an old text, I think it's it's really one of the first to kind of like really retrace um, this this issue of of where does this modern fascination with 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 dieting, with self control, with self discipline come from? And if you really just rewind just even a couple of centuries, you see that that you know even quite the the, the reverse was true. Yeah, that having a good appetite, having a healthy appetite, eating a lot, not just in terms of quantity, but also in terms of quality, was actually the distinguishing hallmark of of, of elites. And in in societies that are marked by by generalized food insecurity, um, generalized secure insecurity in, in 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 general, you don't see this focus on 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 self-discipline. Yeah, that this really slowly starts developing as um, societies become more affluent, as there is general, more general access to, to, to food, as everybody can kind of generally feed themselves. And, and Manel really traces the, 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 the important logic of social distinction in all of this, yeah, that this is fundamentally a, um, a class issue by which elites try to distinguish themselves. So as long as, as, as food is, is insecure and elites are the only ones that have regular access to, to, um, to food, then yes, indulging gluttony tend to be, you know, tend to be um, um, elite affairs, tend to be elite markers of, of, of status. And as that gradually shifts, you see that this, this notion of, of, of self-discipline, of moderation, as, you know, even the, the poorest fraction of society have regular access to, to, to food, then gluttony no longer becomes a, a, a form of distinction, and quite the inverse holds true. Yeah, this 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 this, this development of, of of self-discipline. What I liked is that he actually has a number of very very concrete uh, examples. So it's also very lively. So he talks about the banquets, like the, the sort of uh, performances of of gluttony and uh, the the sort of hugeness of food and the plenty as really as as the way of showing that you're rich and that you have high status and that's something that and then then that shifts gradually to sort of notions of refinement and sort of tiny bits and pieces of food and i think that's really something that we can relate to i mean now having sort of tables and tables of food is something that we would i mean the acceptance of sushi as this sort of new high status sort of is like exemplifies this in a strong way, having these sort of tiny tidbits of raw things that, you know, two or three on your plate. Yeah. And what I also really liked is that he managed to come with some nice quantitative findings mm -hmm. that you also yeah. cite in your own work. Yeah, I think I think it's a brilliant text in the sense that that, that, that Manel is extremely good at, at sourcing his, his his historical documents. And there's this one very inter interesting document that I also use in my own work. It's one of the very early papers by Sir Francis Galton, um, founding father of regression analysis and also dabbled in quite obscure eugenetic models, which we won't get into today. But um, he dug up this, this, this is one piece by Galton in which Galton produces anthropometric data of, 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 of the British aristocracy. It's this, um, this one store in London where the upper class, that the upper classes 
regularly came to, regularly frequented, and had themselves weighed. And this means that they have a very detailed record of, of the weights of, of British noblemen for a, a certain period of time. And, and, and Manel really uses that to, 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 to show how gradually you see this, this sense of moderation emerge and that that translates into the, to the physical dimension. So I, I use the same document. I think it's from the you know, early, early 19th century um, to kind of calculate the body mass index of a lot of these British upper class gentlemen. And by today's standards, all of them would be severely overweight, you know. And so um, he also man man mentions, for instance, Bria Savarin, famous um, French um, writer of gastronomy, who also talks about obesity. But interestingly, obesity is a problem of the rich, of the wealthy, of the, the, the elites. You know, it doesn't you know, it doesn't affect the classes who have to work to survive, says, says, says Priya Savarin, even in a, a contemporary context, that's quite surprising to us, you know, because we tend to, um, to see this as, 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 as being inverted. So I think what Manel really does quite excellently here is, is, is historicize a phenomenon that we tend to take as, as self-evident, you know, this, this, this very core task of sociology and the social sciences to, to denaturalize, to show what we accept as completely self-evident to the extent that, you know, we couldn't, Think about it even, you know, it's, it's, you know, as you say, have a massive plate of fruit in front of you and, and our spontaneous reaction would be disgust, horror. We just can't stomach this. How all of that kind of has, um, has a distinct social genesis in, in Elias's um, terms. Anything that we say about culture or about these sort of tastes tend to mm -hmm. imbue with these normative undercurrents that are also very, very, very difficult for us to. So I think also so speaking for myself, yeah. it's just very, very complicated to to get a grips on the notion that that there could have been a time when it's really when it's really much cooler to be fat and to be thin it's, Too kind of, yes. it would yeah. be it would be so i i read it and i think it's interesting but it's yeah. very difficult for me to really mm -hmm. to really kind believe of, yeah. this that so mm -hmm. well i want you should eat more because you will be you know fat and beautiful and everybody yeah, will love you for that and that's an, it's so hard to it, to to switch these sort of uh beliefs but it's oh, also yeah. something that that is eminently difficult for sociologists yes, to deal yeah. with. Um, like, as I, I sometimes would love to be an historian because, you know, historians can get away with so much more. They can kind of describe, as you say, these, these, these scenes of the medieval dinner table and describe the most obscene kind of things, you know, like, and people don't care. People think that that's exotic. That's interesting. You know, when we sociologists look at very similar things, but look at them in the here and the now, people tend to generally be less amused, you know, when it comes about their own eating habits and their own ways of, of, of treating their body. So I'm, I'm sometimes jealous of, of historical sociologists and historians like, like Manel, but they, you know, it's, it's, it's so fun to unearth these, these old documents and to kind of contrast these exotic ways of being with the, with with our own um, to ultimately bring a very similar message, right? These things were socially constructed. Um, but if you tend to do that as a sociologist working in the here and now, people don't tend to be that happy, you know, when you scrutinize their weight and their eating habits. So yeah, it must well, be fun to be so, in this Yeah, so indeed. So I think that's also why I like historical sociology because it's the best way to, to uncover these processes of naturalization. Mm -hmm. So things, making things natural. And I think specifically when it comes to inequality, this is what we do. All the beliefs that we have, that we learn as member of a specific culture, they become completely self-evident to us. Yep. So if mm -hmm. we talk about body size uh then then we see that that it's really uh it's central as you say and we will move on to this to our understandings of of social inequality because we can you know we can read 
people's bodies very well. And from their bodies, we can make pretty good guesses of what sort of persons mm-hmm. were. I mean, they're, they're flawed and they're biased, but they're more accurate yeah, than we would like yeah, to, than we would like to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, it's also, I mean, these are things that people believe to be true. So of course it's bad to be fat. It's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. It's ugly. Absolutely. It's, yep. Of course, how More could it be different? Yeah. It's repulsive. Yeah. These people should get a grip. Uh, so it really, and I think this is, I think one of the strongest uh, examples I know of how how these sort of inequalities, how they become justified in very, very yeah. deep uh, beliefs. So I think it's a very good place also to show how culture and inequality are not just, it's not just about going to the opera. It's really about things that, that we 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 can't not believe I and mean, we can sort of deconstruct it and read it but still there we are yeah yeah yes exactly so that brings us to Darmon I think uh very quickly so can you say something about her work and who sure. she is sure I think um Muriel Darmon is um, also part of our center by the way a member of the uh center famous French sociologist French ethnographer um this text is actually her own early work um, on the sociology of, 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 of eating disorders. Um, I think it links up nicely to the, the Manel text in the sense that Manel kind of describes, you know, where where this, you know, ends us up in the here and now in, in the sense of this, this the, the dominance of this ideology of self-restraint. And, and then in a sense, Darmon zooms in on, 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 on those sectors of social space where this ideology tends to be quite prevalent or it tends to be the, the norm in her... Her text is called the, the, the Fifth Element, um, which is, is quite interesting. She also starts from this realization, well, sure, social scientists have looked at, at, at eating disorders, but they also they always do so through a quite specific lens. They tend to construct this as, as a being a, 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 a gender phenomenon or a particular age phenomenon or a phenomenon that's quintessentially modern that we didn't have 150 years ago or a phenomenon that's... Um, that's quite peculiar to the to the West, and she says like those four factors are really dominant in thinking about eating disorder. But there's one factor that we paradoxically, systematically ignore, and that is the factor of class. You know that 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 it's 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 absolutely under- crucial to understand the role that, that that class plays in 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 the development of something like like eating disorders. What what she really shows in this text is that yes, anorexia nervosa is a is a pathological condition, but it's also an eminently sociological condition. It's rooted in, in, in a quite um, distinct set of, of, of social conditions that in many ways these, these young girls that, 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 that are being affected by this, um, by this disease merely take to extreme conclusions what's already inscribed in their class ethos, this, 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 this focus on, 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 on self-discipline, this focus on, on, on moderation, um, the ability to control yourself, the, but also the focus on, on performance, you know, the, the control of mind over body, of being intellectually very, uh, very astute and very, um, very developed. And, and, and what Darmont really does is kind of trace how, how a lot of these pathological conclusions are really already there in the, in the, in the everyday lifestyle of these, of, 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 of these girls. And it's precisely also because they're part of the everyday lifestyle that these girls can already advance quite far into the, um, the, the trajectory of being, of being anorexic without their environment immediately, immediately noticing. Because in many ways, especially in the very early stages, they're being exemplary 
there being, you know, very good um, members of the, the bourgeois, they are very controlled, very, very self-disciplined, very intellectual. So all of these things that kind of um, filter into that. And she kind of, in this paper, kind of really retraces that, 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 that process. Um, a key word here is, is, is the notion of an anorexic career. Yeah, that this is, is not something, you don't become anorexic overnight. This is, is, is a process, a gradual um, process. She, she draws on, 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 on microsociological authors, interactions authors, people like Howard Becker, for instance, to kind of describe, you know, the various stages in which these girls um, develop these, 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 these anorexic um, symptoms, um, which can start, you know, very innocently by, you know, going on a diet or doing, doing better at school and then gradually develop into, to, into quite pathological behavior that these girls themselves no longer can get out of, you know, where, where they really need external intervention to kind of to kind of break this 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 yeah this pattern of increasing self control, increasing self discipline, yeah. Yeah, what's what I really liked about this is also that it's really very um, intense ethnographic. So it's really it has a lot of very small vignettes where she explains and interviews segments. So it's really also on a very detailed, subtle level that she traces the steps by which people sort of gradually move from, you know, being just a good middle class, dieting, well-behaved girl to something that spins out of control completely. And also including the moment that they enter into these clinics and that they become uh, sort of, yeah, the the object of of all sorts of treatments. So I think that's also so I think what I really liked apart from the really clever argument is that it's that is really has a very good sense of what happens in small scale interactions. And I liked for instance at the beginning there is this story of one of the girls and she has eating problems and I think her aunt and uncle they take her out to these fancy restaurants. <laughs> because she doesn't want to eat, she doesn't want to eat anything, but she does want to have sort of really sort of expensive, small, exquisite yeah, tidbits, tidbits kind of, of, yes, of kind of things, yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. what she still wants to eat. And I think mm -hmm. this was a sort of very yeah. clever observation also towards mm -hmm. the end, where she has another of these sort of apparently fairly... Uh, uh, high bourgeoisie girl who is also who doesn't want to talk to the nurses only to the doctors so i think it's also i think it's really clever how she fishes out the the class segments in this in this process and i think i was really impressed by that because there she also shows that it's indeed it's a wider sort of habitus really uh, and within within this habitus, there's this development of going one step and one step and one step further and gradually spinning out of control, but all still being sort of in sync with this general understanding of what it means to be a well-behaved upper middle class French girl. Voila. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I think it, it's it's for me, it's a masterpiece of, of ethnography, you know, that it's really not just about interviewing five girls who are going through this, but it's kind of, you know, longer detailed observation. You know, the fact that these girls drink tea and not coffee. You know, already has class connotations. He's very kind of subtle, and also this focus on 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 not just talking about what these girls think, what they what they experience is you know, are their their mentality, but looking at the practices. You know, looking looking at the types of activities that they that they engage in, and kind of really seeing looking at those activities as being key to to, to understanding the development of this this anorexic career and kind of this, this development. It's yeah, it's ultimately this habitus of self starvation. You know, this habitus of extreme forms of of, of self control. So yeah, I think whereas. Manila is an excellent piece of uh, historical analysis. I really think this is a very good, um, good piece of ethnography.
photography, which by the way won an award. I think she she got awarded with the um, with the Sage um, Award for Excellence and in Innovation and in Research from the British Sociological, precisely for that. I think it's 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 it tackles an important issue, but it does so through the yeah the very the very minute type of observation that, that ethnographic analysis allows. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um... So what's interesting here that we see, so she also draws on Bourdieu, as you said, she she uses Howard Becker, uh, which I think we've heard about before when we're talking about art worlds, and she also talks about Bourdieu, but it's actually, it seems to be a very different sort of Bourdieu than most people. So most people tend to think of the Bourdieu of distinction and, you know, the the opera going classes and the and the sort of pop music listening classes. So how would you how how are these two Bourdieu's connected? Or how did well, they think, become so disconnected? Without without putting words into Muriel's mouth, she would probably say, well the first one is a very anglicized Bourdieu. It's kind of Bourdieu as a as he's been received by by you know American and and, and British social sciences and in, in, in many ways if you look at that the original Bourdieu, which is a very problematic statement, of course, but that, that there is a lot in Bourdieu's work already, especially in his, in his conception of something like habitus, that, 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 that is much more attentive to change. That's much more attentive to what Bourdieu himself calls creative transformation. So if you, if you, if you look at Bourdieu's fieldwork on Algeria, he's already talking about, you know, how this, this traditional economic habitus of these, these Algerian peasants, these Algerian workers, how that is being drastically modified by these, these new colonial conditions, this importation of colonial capitalism into into Algeria. So, in many ways, people very often ignore is people think Bourdieu developed habitus as a as a as a concept designed to explain social reproduction. You know, this, this is kind of a circular model. Um, whereas for Bourdieu, habitus is a crisis concept. Is he originally crafted it to 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 deal with what happens when people no longer fit into their um, environments? And it's in those instances that you really see that that the that you can really see the effect of habitus. Um, and, and I think really Darmont picks up on that, you know, like that, that there's also an ethnographic Bourdieu that's, that's maybe not as prominent in a book like Distinction, you know, but, 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 but that one who's very attentive to, to the fact that habitus, whether we like it or not, gets modified throughout our lives, um, sometimes in ways that tends to confirm it, sometimes in ways that tend to force us to reorient um, our actions. But again, for Bourdieu, that's never a mechanical process. That always, that's why he coins this term creative transformation. We're all, always forced to, to, to adapt to new, to new circumstances. So I think this, this idea of, of, of emerging Bourdieu and, and, and Becker is not all that crazy. I think there is this, 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 this idea of focusing on, on biography and focusing on trajectory. I think that's very much um, already there, but it's true. I don't think it's uh, often always clearly recognized by a lot of the, um, the Anglophone um, reception of Bourdieu. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting here in sort of this this version of Bourdieu rather than the anglicized is that what mm-hmm. it's a very different understanding of power that seems mm-hmm. to emerge. And I think this is not only in this paper but also in the other people a paper about the 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 weight loss group where right? mm-hmm. she does yeah. covert uh, so undercover mm-hmm. ethnographic research. Uh, but I think in both there is an understanding that if you're talking about cultural inequality, obviously you're talking about power, about people mm-hmm, sort of uh, exercising power over other people. Uh, and I think this is slightly more subdued in the anorexic, although there you see also mm-hmm. the notion that power struggles not only on the sort of high level of society, but mm-hmm. also on the very, very low level of interactions, that, that this mm-hmm. is really something that is not, yeah. that it can be very explicit again with the girl who is uh, refusing to talk to the nurses. I think that's also, it shows that status 
or inequality is really also the exercise of power and the yeah, power and, and being exercised. Uh, exercised there, you. and I think... Yeah. What, one of the interesting findings of the paper as well is that, that there, even within people who suffer from eating disorders, there are strategies of distinction so that people who suffer from anorexia tend to look down upon people who have bulimia, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, for not being really, you know, having a true eating disorder. These are the people that can't ha- handle it. You know, they, they first have to indulge and then have to purge. And it's the anorexic that in many ways is, you know, the, 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 the quintessence of, of, of self-control and self-discipline. So even within this, and this is interesting, this is a finding that has been since, you know, confirmed to me by other psychologists who really say that, that even, you know, within this field of, of eating disorders, that, that anorexics very often look down upon people like bulimia is not, it's not a true eating disorder. You know, this is not, you know, these are people who don't have, who haven't mastered full self-control. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting to, yeah, to note that as well. So in a sense, in a sense, it seems like, like what this, this says is that anorexia is like a like a perversion of the middle class habitus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's in an extreme kind of hypertrophied form. You know what happens when 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 yeah, these things. Um, it is pathological, but in many ways, it takes a certain class ethos to its to its logical extremes, and that's kind of, um, of course, class in and of itself can't explain everything. There is, you know, why does this happen disproportionately to women and not to men? Um, there's other interesting findings there. And why does this disproportionately happen to families in which there are only daughters and no sons? Why are the oldest children disproportionately um, susceptible to? So there is kind of all of these, um, they also have to, to play with things like inheritance, you know, like like the, 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 the inheritance of the family capital, all of these things, the lack of, of male heirs and, and you know, uh, anorexic women defining with the masculine, not with the feminine. There is kind of these, these, all of these interesting things that this paper doesn't necessarily talk about, but that, that kind of do play in the, in the, in the background there. Yeah. So that's the final thing I wanted to remark about this paper. I think it's really interesting that in, it is intersectional as, mm-hmm. as it could be said. So intersectionality is the notion that inequalities are, have, are, come in different shapes and sizes mm-hmm. and these different so that you have gender inequalities class inequalities age inequalities etc racial inequalities and they intersect and they sort of um influence one another mm-hmm. so they're in the interplay something specific emerges and i think that's something that uh is again often attributed to a number of uh uh anglophone authors but i mm-hmm. think in the sort of in the in the, some of the French sociologists, and I think particularly in Bourdieu, you see an attentiveness to also the some of the other variables. And I think this is something that Darmont really very beautifully uh, unpacks. So how gender and class and also uh, specific nationality really works together in creating a specific form that will only work for a specific group of people. Voila, and I think there's, there's also a more general kind of lesson in here at for the sociology of the body, first and foremost, but also for sociology in general, is that like we, our knowledge of these things isn't advanced by kind of essayistic sociology and kind of grand narratives. You know, our knowledge is really advanced by 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 you know carefully constructing our, our object theoretically, but then also careful observation and careful um, empirical analysis. I think that is. Um, teaches us so much more about things like yes, the role of the body in contemporary societies, and then that that we need to kind of really break with with a lot of the essayism that it has to be said really marked a lot of the, the sociology of the body really at the turn of the century, the, the early millennium, where there's a lot of there's a lot of theorizing, there's a lot of grand narratives about the status of the body in contemporary societies, but there was often a bit of a, a lack of kind of um, empirical analysis. So this is just to, just to, so this is actually taking us very nicely and fluently to your 
uh, chapter because that's actually <laughs> yeah. where your chapter starts. But maybe you can be a bit more specific. So who are you critiquing? So yeah, no, it's, it's too um, general, it's too essayistic. So I have yeah, a sense, and I think most academics have a sense of who you're talking about. But <laughs> yeah, it's, um, no, I think it, it maybe yeah, even for students today, kind of kind of hard to imagine that, and especially because this is a class on on, on culture and, and inequality. But I was recently talking with a British colleague who said it was really hard in the early 2000s to publish a paper on social class. That that it was really like the, the major leading journals in, in, in the UK didn't really, you know, class was really deemed to be completely um, irrelevant. Nowadays, it's very hard to publish papers that don't talk about class. So, you know, things can kind of shift. So I do think we're, we're kind of moving into a bit of a, a different side of the intellectual pendulum, you know, like we're, but especially like when I started contemplating this research in the, in the you know, the early, early 2000s, it's as it is, as you're always a young PhD researcher, you think you found a topic that nobody talked about, you know, I think, yes, I'm going to study the body. This is something that sociologists haven't looked about. And you quickly realize, of course, sociologists have been talking about this for the last 30, 40 years, you know, you're, you're far from new, but it was immediately became evident that a lot of this, 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 this theorizing about the body was, was really being carried by, by a lot of authors who subscribed to this view that we were entering into a new phase of modernity, you know, and, and there was different names being given. Some, some called it late modernity, others high, other called it liquid or reflexive modernity. But one of the most famous, for instance, Anthony Giddens, you know, who talks about, you know, this, this notion of, of, of reflexive modernity. Zygmunt Bauman is, 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 is another big name, you know, the, the, the idea of liquid modernity. And again, there's, there's, important conceptual distinctions between these authors. I don't want to kind of, you know, run roughshod over those, but, but at the end, the, the, the kind of the message was, was quite similar, you know, like the, the relationship particularly to our own body was increasingly individualizing. Our body became this, 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 the term project was, was, was very prominent, you know, this idea that our body is a, is a plastic object that we can kind of shape according to our own individual desires or our own individual um, whims. Also this idea that the body was becoming a source of, of anxiety, you know, we're becoming more and more worried about the, the body. And again, all of those things are true to a certain extent, but it was postulated with a lot of pomp. You know, this is a universal phenomenon. Everybody's kind of going through this. I think Anthony Giddens stated it quite clearly. Everyone today in advanced yeah. societies is on a diet. You yeah, know, kind I think, of those... yeah, exactly. So what's interesting about them is that, that indeed they're very essayistic. So very often, mm -hmm. so they were very dominant indeed for some time. Mm -hmm. So they were um, saying, you know, the times have changed. Everything is different mm -hmm. now. We used to have modernity yep. that's over. This is a completely yep. new era. Uh, it's yep. also very interesting that very rarely uh, they used um, actual empirical evidence so it's really Absolutely. more like they were talking about their own experience. And I think you can easily tell them from, well, first of all, they're very good writers. You can easily tell them from mm -hmm. the use of sentences that start with either everyone or even worse, we. We, <laughs> I think, us. yes. I think yes. we, us. And I think that's really mm -hmm. with Giddens and also with Bauman. So they have this sort of vantage point of talking about, you know, we are all on a diet. We all have yes. this experience of we yes, as yes. humans of the 21st century. And I think it, that's yeah, very absolutely. interesting, this sort of uncritical understanding. So that we, that what we experience really is something that every, and if, if you haven't experienced it yet, then you will. Then you will. You're just not <laughs> there yet. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that you're that going there. Is. 
Yeah, this and- extremely unqualified use of the first person plural, yes. yeah, that is, is is extremely problematic. And I think, um, yeah, and 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 that it was kind of against that backdrop that that that, and it's it's a similar sense of of intellectual puzzle that that Darman also notes is like, well, you know, there is this obvious core variable that you know sociologists have looked at traditionally historically, you know, the issues of, of stratification of, of of social class, of class position, of class inequality, and 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 you didn't really see kind of a developed account of, 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 of how class kind of plays into to, to all of this, the way in which we experience our bodies, the way in which we manage our bodies, perceive them, not just our own, but the, 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 the bodies of others. And it's kind of was really that, that sense of frustration and really, I'm not in the business of tooting my own horn, but I think it's really trying to come up with a more systematic account of, of, of how this relationship plays out between, on the one hand, you know, occupying a distinct position in social space, on the other hand, the way in which our bodies look, how we perceive our bodies, that kind of really drove the um, the overall ambition of, of, of my book, Distinctions in, um, in the Flesh. Yes. So because, so your book, especially the chapter that you shared with us, really builds this up uh, using quantitative materials, so mm-hmm. rather step mm-hmm. by step. So can you say something yeah. about the way you sure. organize this? Yeah, so so the first thing is, is when you start looking at that, okay, what do we know about this relationship between, you know, class inequality and, 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 and the body? You quickly find that empirical sociology isn't all that useful. Yeah, there you don't really find all that much work that kind of explored this relationship. And I quickly noticed that I kind of had to go outside of our discipline and kind of notice that it's, it's not sociologists, but it's epidemiologists and social epidemiologists in particular who have paradoxically taught us the most about how our, our bodies come to reflect their, their distinct social positions, um, not just in terms of things like height and weight, but also really at a deep kind of physiological level, things like, like blood pressure, like hormonal regulations, like stress, you know, how these how our bodies are fundamentally susceptible to their, to their social um, environments. So I really drew a lot of inspiration from, from epidemiological work, but, but I also at the same time realized that, that as a sociologist, you kind of have to go beyond epidemiology in, 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 in two very important ways. I mean, on the one hand, epidemiologists are eminently practical people. They have a very clear goal that is rid the world of disease, which in the current context, we can only applaud, right? I mean, um, but especially when it came to things like obesity, weight control, underweight, overweight, they, they had this tendency to kind of look at it as purely as a health issue. You know, purely as an issue of physical well-being, looking at how obesity kind of affects us at the at the at the physiological level and all the kind of pathological effects that it that it produces. So it was really kind of moving beyond that to also show well, it's not just um, a physical affliction. You know, it's also as you kind of pour, uh, pointed out at the beginning, it's, it's it's a moral issue. It's it's a moral stigma. Yeah, people people who are afflicted by obesity, they're not just ill. They, they have problems. They have mental problems. Yeah, I, I, in the book, I, 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 I paraphrase Mariana Valverde who talks about, you know, it as a disease of the will. You know, these people have a lack of self-discipline to kind of so open, open up our understanding of, 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 of obesity also as being a social stigma. And at the same time, you know, epidemiologists, they, again, they tend to be quite practical, but they don't always have the most sophisticated notions of class. I think it was is really kind of, okay, looking at, at epidemiological data, but coming up with a with a model of social class that's slightly more more complex that allows us to kind of look at things slightly more um, in slightly more detail so that was kind of the the, the the general idea looking at data that epidemiologists traditionally look at but then looking at them through the lens of sociology of class and especially the um, the model proposed by by Bourdieu Bourdieu's idea that you know there was something like the space of class bodies that in many ways our, our physical characteristics tend to um, tend to vary quite clearly in things in terms of things like like social position. So what I 
tend to do quite extensively in this chapter is to kind of yeah, produce fairly detailed statistical analysis of how things like body weight uh, measured by, by BMI, we can talk about that in a sec as well, uh, but also things like height, how they kind of, they do tend to vary quite clearly. So you start with the, the a, a table that has BMI and uh, class, basically. And that's the beginning point. And that's actually, it's a very sort of powerful uh, result that you show. And you, you use, I think, Flemish or Belgian data yeah, so these are our national health survey data. So I mean, like, you can have all the, the, the theoretical ambitions that you want, but at the end of the day, it's it's kind of it's it's, it's about technical limitations when you want to do fairly fine grained analysis. You just no, need very no, large sample no need, sizes. There's no need to no need to apologize. I think it's actually very interesting <laughs> that you have this that you have this very simple data that they show a very striking pattern. I think that so it starts from a very dramatic pattern. So depending on your class position, your your weight or your BMI will be completely different and it's a very strong relation and then from there so that's what the first table say and then from there you actually move on to develop your own measurements um because epidemiology as you point out is well it's a nice beginning but they're not very sensitive to some of the other things so can you say a bit more about where you went from there yeah so it's it's, it's like again a lot of work both in epidemiology but also in sociology is based on body mass index which you know um which is a problematic indicator. It's not the, the worst indicator in the world, but it, it has obvious limitations. It's a very crude indicator of our, our of our of our appearance. So, even though I, I, I spend a lot of time doing analysis of, of, of body mass index, you quickly realize, well, you know, as a sociologist, you you cannot be fully satisfied with this. For one thing, BMI makes zero distinction between muscle and fat. So, an extremely <laughs> yeah. muscled muscular person and an extremely overweight person would have identical BMI. I don't have to explain very long to you that we're dealing with very different types of um, relationships to the body. So one of the things I, I actually ended up doing was, was getting together with, um, with a visual artist. And one of the things we did is we constructed a series of scales of body types. Um, why did we construct these scales? Well, the existing material, and you can probably attest to this in your own work as well, the, the existing scales are absolutely horrible. I mean, they're, um, they're very crude, very, very imprecise. They're not stick figures, but they're not much better than, than, than that. You basically ask people to position themselves on the basis of, of a set of figures that I struggled with to kind of um, locate myself in. Um, they're also based on this kind of problematic assumption that, you know, you can simply arrange all body types on a scale going from the thinnest to the fattest, which, you know, like is already quite problematic when you start thinking about men. You know, there's there's two ways of being big for a, for a man, man as being very muscular or being very... Um, very overweight. So that's ultimately for women to, too. I think it's for women. Yeah, it's it's rarer, yeah. but still, mm-hmm. yeah. They're also so it's, I've worked yeah. also. I've also worked with these. There are also really problems in terms of. Uh, uh, so they're very sort of based on white bodies. Yeah. So you have uh, sort mm-hmm. of body types that really differ for Asian and African American people, and it's uh, all of Absolutely. these. So there are a lot of, yeah. But you invented something better. Yeah, well, we, we, we try to approximate something that looks more like, I mean, within the obvious restrictions that there are. And then we, um, yeah, we, um, I conducted this, this, this study on a, on, a, on a smaller sample, like roughly 900 people, which we presented with these scales. And then we asked them a number of things. So, you know, what is your, what is your current body? You know, what, which figure comes closest to your own body at the time, which is the type of body that you would aspire to. Um, but also things like, you know, um, which body do you think belongs to an unemployed person? Which body do you think belongs to a manual worker? You know, which is the body of an artist? Which is so to kind of also see to what extent do we use body type? You know, you alluded to this in a second, you know, to what extent do we use body type to situate um, 
other people on kind of a yeah on a on a social scale to position others in social space on the basis of their their physical attributes like um, like weight. So this chapter in particular talks about that you know, at length. Yeah. So and actually in your current work you um, you expand on this right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. can you say a bit more about what you're doing right now to wrap up this discussion of yeah, literature? Sure, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think if this is one of the things I, that, that I took away from from this book is 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 how little we as, as sociologists at the end of the day end up knowing about this, this this process of classification. You mentioned, you know, we we classify each other on on the basis of appearance, and that's already you know quite astound- astonishing. But we do this at a rapidly quick pace. You know, there's very interesting studies that now show that we you know. We classify things or people on the basis of social status within like three, four seconds. This happens at an incredibly large pace. So this must mean that we internalize these 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 stereotypical conceptions, these schematic conceptions of what people are like um, from a very early age. So so what I'm doing right now is kind of getting a better sense of these what you could call process of classification. You know, so the, how how do we kind of position um, people, properties, objects in terms of, 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 of class position. So what I'm doing right now is really looking at how these these preconceptions already tend to develop among very young social actors. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, yeah, people have a, have a, have a very clear, clear opinion about what fat people are like, what kind of moral characteristics they have. Well, I'm now studying these things and showing that, yeah, this seven and eight-year-olds already have these kind of um, patterns in their head, even if they're shown identical figures, that vary in terms of class, they automatically say, well, that, that guy's the fattest, even though he objectively isn't, but you kind of see how already class stereotypes and, and physical stereotypes are very, very closely interconnected. So I'm using work in visual sociology um, to kind of already see like at what age do really kids start picking up these 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 stereotypical conceptions about what 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 a good physique should be, what a morally appropriate physique should be, and what kind of a deviant and an, an abject body type is 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 like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it is, so what you use is is images of families mm-hmm. and children mm-hmm. are asked to sort of uh, classify them yeah, using absolutely. the pictures. So what, yeah. what I think what I really like about this is that it's actually a, a way of sort of squeezing culture back into the study mm-hmm. of inequality in when it comes to physique in two ways. So one is that indeed it's so you show how people uh, classify so how culture is mm-hmm. part of a classification so how this is something that is learned and I mm-hmm. think this is also something that's very nationally specific I remember a long time ago Celia Ridgway who is a social psychologist who is mm-hmm. and she said that there are actually differences between um, between national cultures in what the sort of what classifications people make first mm-hmm. and yep. I remember she's saying that for Americans it's for Americans it's gender and race uh, mm-hmm. That is the first to snap thing. And I've always, yeah. so my impression has always been for most Europeans, it's probably gender and class. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the first, that's the first thing yeah. that we see. Uh, but I've never, so this is just a, a hunch, uh, mm-hmm. but, but I've never seen it um, studied before until this thing that you are doing, so this classification yeah. process. And I think it's also, I think that's interesting because it also means that some of the American work doesn't really work for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So culture is really these sort of processes of what Lamont, well, she talks about stigmatization and racialization. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. in the in the European context, it's really, it's, it's class, well, classification as a word is rather sort of, yeah. it's been taken 
but that's really what mm-hmm. it is, right? It's that's something, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's one. I think the other way is that it's also the other way that culture comes in is in the sort of the, the boundary drawing that follows from it. So it's not yeah. just a classifying of people, but it's really also the sort of sorting people into social groups. On the basis of the, yeah, and then, uh, and then sort of these are, they're my sort of people and not my sort of people. So I think it's really interesting how the, how looking through the lens of physique is indeed uh, really about culture in many more ways than. uh, I I, I fundamentally agree. And I think (laughs) what you see now, maybe more on the other side of the Atlantic than here, is this this idea of, that as cultural sociologists in particular, we need to get a better sense of the kind of the cognitive mechanics that, that you know, that, 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 that underlie all of these processes. You know, we are fundamentally interested in processes of classification, processes of judgment, you know, but we know very little of how that actually operates cognitively. So I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely something we need to, we need to push further. Absolutely. Yeah. So to finish this discussion of the readings, I have two final mm-hmm. questions that I always ask. Uh, so mm-hmm. one is for you. So where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. So you were already starting to talk about cognitive mechanisms. Um, so what else? Yeah, I think that, yeah. that that is something, you know, like the, getting a better sense of when, how do we internalize culture and what does it mean to internalize culture in the first place? It's 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 a great turn of phrase, you know, to say that things become inscribed in bodies and then, you know, that there is mental frames or repertoires or grammars of evaluation. But what are we talking about? What are these things at the end of the day? And when do we start... Um, when do we start acquiring these things? I think that is something that we really need to, I mean, sociology in many ways is disingenuous. You know, we, we, we have this hackneyed phrase, you know, socially constructed, everything is socially constructed. Yeah. I tend to agree, but what at the end of the day does it mean to say that things are, are, are socially constructed? You know, we, we tend to lean explicitly or implicitly a lot on this notion of socialization, that things are, you know, internalized. They're not innate. They're not natural, but when push comes to shove, we don't really look at these processes of, of socialization. You know, even even people who draw on a concept like habitus, you know, habitus always points in one direction. You know, early childhood, formative experiences, you know, sequence matters. What you experience first determines what you experience afterwards. So I think that is is definitely something we need to we need to push going forward, like really getting a better looking sense. Looking at and, socialization and, also means looking at children, right? Absolutely, yeah. So 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 this idea of, of what is culture, how do we internalize culture, how do developing actors, you know, grab culture from their environment and then start using it in their in their in their everyday lives. I think that is, you know, cultural sociologists have a really hard time agreeing about what culture is. You know, there's currently thirty seven different definitions of, of culture. But it's curious to see that there's one thing on which most of us tend to agree. You know, most of us tend to agree by the fact that culture is not innate. Whatever else it might be, we it's tend learned. to think it's yeah. not something, voila, we it's learned. learned. Then, okay, but that really, the onus places the onus on us. Like, okay, but what does that mean? That When is it learned? When is it learned? How is it learned? So I think really kind of focusing on on, on, on those issues is, 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 is quite important. Yeah, then maybe bending a lot of this this stuff back and also this is a bit of a fad i think but here is where where interdisciplinarity becomes immensely important i think um a lot of the the things that that interest us just as you know i noticed that epidemiologists were doing a lot more interesting things on on the body and class than sociologists were right now i think a lot of exciting work on on classification on judgment on socialization is happening outside of our frontiers you know it's happening in, in developmental psychology it's happening in cognitive neuroscience and and Without having to subscribe to that particular research agenda, I think it's important for us um, to kind of yeah engage in a more 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 fundamental dialogue with these with these sciences. They can learn a lot from us, but in many ways, we are again being disingenuous. But because we tend to lean on these cognitive concepts, symbolic boundaries, boundary drawing, habitus, you know, frames, repertoires. At the end of the day, they have to deal with cognition. 
then it's up to us to kind of see, okay, but what do we know about human cognition and how it develops? So I think that's definitely something we need to, yeah, we'd need to look into. So, and we will. Uh, so the other big question that, that I want to ask before we move on to the assignment is this, so what question? So what are the sort of real world implications of all these insights? So what can we do with it? Yeah, the, the, the real world implications are all, always massive and it's a massive topic to t tackle in a couple of, of, of minutes. But obviously there are, I mean, we're dealing with, 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 with personal issues, with intimate issues, issues of how people experience their bodies. And at the same time, very, very very public issues. I think nobody can deny that that slimness, um, fatness, appearance, looks are, are quintessentially important in, 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 in modern society. So are there, there are policy recommendations in, in, in all of this? Yes, I, I, I think there are. Um, I think, you know, how going forward, we maybe need to be slightly critical about the way in which a lot of policies currently being directed towards people from different class backgrounds. Um, a lot of policy recommendations I drew from my own work They tend to be negative in character, but still, I think they're important is maybe, you know, first of all, stop pretending that all of this is a question of knowledge, of information, of, of educating people, that we can kind of solve a lot of these issues of obesity, overweight, simply by, you know, giving people the right type of information. Um, I think it's it's problematic because it starts from a very paternalistic understanding of, of, of how those at the bottom of, of, of society um, understand health. Um, I think a lot of people are very well aware that McDonald's is, is, is unhealthy and um, that fast, fast food is unhealthy. Um, but that's not the issue. You know, it's, 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 um, it's not just knowing it that it's, that's, that's enough. It starts from a very paternalistic um, conception of, of, of people who struggle with obesity at the bottom of the class structure. But it also starts from a very unrealistic um, assessment of the conditions that are actually needed to change things. Um, knowledge plays a role in that, but there is, there is a lot more things that, 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 that play into this. Um, even in the, the contemporary period, you know, we live in, 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 in the, the context of a, of a global pandemic where issues of health and illness become important. And what we talk about in the context of the body also has larger ramifications. What does it mean to be healthy or to lead a healthy life? So one of the things I talk at length about in the book is, is the role of time and time perspective. So what does it mean to be to be healthy? You know, to do something that's good for your health means I do things today or I don't do things today. I eat healthy, I exercise, I don't smoke, I don't drink in order to have benefits that by definition will manifest themselves 10, 20, 30 years from now, much later. And that already presupposes a quite particular relationship to time. Thinking about time, long-term perspective, a strategic relationship to time, which we know is distributed very unequally between the social classes. I mean, this is much easier to do when you have a stable income, um, you know, like uh, as long as the present is secure, it, it becomes possible to develop this preventive, caring, monitoring relationship. But when you're a single mom having to raise three children on a minimum wage, you're really not thinking about, you know, what's happening in five years from now. You're worrying at the end of the month and that there is kind of very real conditions. So especially when it comes to things, thinking about things like health, there are all these factors that we, we need to take into account. And at the end of the day, knowledge in and of itself is, is I think, a, a much smaller, much smaller factor in all yeah. that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's also, uh, especially with the current pandemic, I think many of the things you say being very true and also very urgent. I think we, I think we hear all the time that that the chances of having COVID, you know, 
turning really serious is related to obesity or to what is called underlying conditions. And it turns out that both obesity and all the other underlying conditions are also very unequally distributed. And it's... Uh, so this is also, I think it's it's not only a health problem or a medical problem, but it's really a social problem underlying. Yeah, and I think the the current the current way of thinking about this is sort of the very individualistic way, the moralizing way, it makes it very difficult for us and also for policymakers to to think to grasp, about this, yeah, yeah, to yeah, grasp it absolutely. and to tackle yeah. it. But I'm also I'm wondering, so what would you say to to this in this sort of context of policymakers. So how would you say, listen, that, you know, that people are sort of overweight, have a higher BMI and more likely mm -hmm. to have serious COVID. Uh, so what do you tell these people? And what, what do you, you tell, tell the policymakers? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ultimately, I mean, maybe to go, go back just a bit, you know, this very notion of an epidemic is already quite deceptive. I mean, you know, like this, it's idea that affects all of us, you know, like whether you're talking about the obesity epidemic or the current pandemic, you know, like it's, it's, we're not all in the same situation. We're not all equally exposed to this um, virus. You know, we know that it already, you know, disproportionately affects those at the bottom of social, of social space. So in any ways, a policy recommendation needs to take uh, that into account, you know, like self-isolation, telework, that's all great when you have the type of job that you can, you know, work from home. But there is, you know, right now, a lot of people who don't have the luxury, you have to be out, you have to be in close contact. So um, it's, it's, you know, so actually my policy recommendation would be, you know, the Ministry of Health needs to go and have a, a good long chat with the Minister of Labor and, and Economic Affairs, you know, because that's ultimately where these, where these things start. It's not an information question. We need to kind of be serious about, you know, generalizing the conditions that can allow this kind of caring, monitoring, preventive relationship to the body to take hold. And conditions of material insecurity are are extremely detrimental, extremely averse to, to developing that particular type of, 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 of relationship. And before we get a hold of that, before we kind of universalize this this minimal degree of security, I think it's going to be very naive to, to, to expect that everybody kind of adopts this excuse me, neoliberal, entrepreneurial, preventive attitude towards their, um, towards their bodies. Yeah. Yes. Well, there potentially is a lot of work for cultural sociologists. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so you have a number of discussion questions mm -hmm. that you have prepared for the students. Yeah. Um, so can you say something about this? Because they're yeah, actually sure. quite big questions. They're, yeah, yeah. I think they're they're quite yeah. quite vast topics, but hopefully also yeah. they they connect with um, with people's everyday lives mm -hmm. a bit. So yeah, like you know, go ahead read these three papers carefully, and then when you've read them, you know, maybe think about the following questions. You know, so one of the things talking about policy to kind of segue into that, you know, like one of the the propositions by policymakers have been, you know, why not introduce the idea of a fat tax? You know, like let's either directly tax people on on their BMI, which is already quite quite <laughs> threatening, but also, you know, maybe just tax fattening foods and and, and, and and drinks, you know, and you know, that might be a way of, of preventing, you know, overweight and obesity. So read these three papers maybe and then kind of have a have a think, you know, do you do you think that's a good or a bad idea? And what what are kind of, you know, the pros and cons? Um, to what extent do you find support for that idea in these texts or, or why would those potentially be um, be a bad idea? Um, I think a very important topic, I think something that's also close to your heart, I think is, is you know, like thinking about fatness or corpulence as a form of, of physical stigma. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's, um, it's comparable to other types of physical stigma, you know, related things like stick, skin color, you know, ethnicity, 
physical disability. So in what ways is, is, is weight stigmatization similar to those type of, of, of stigma? But in what ways does it also kind of differ from things like racism and, and, and ableism? What kind of sets you know, weight stigmatization apart from, from, from other forms of, of, of stigmatization? You know? um, it maybe to, to the political climate we live in, the kind of the general kind of political ideological climate that we're in, you know, in what way does kind of, you know, the glorification of slimness, self-control, ambition, you know, um, self-discipline. In what way does that kind of mesh with a, a more general neoliberal political climate, you know, in which there's a strong focus on individual responsibility and personal achievement? You know, you are responsible responsible for your own fate. And how does that kind of tie into um, to what these texts uh, ultimately talk about? And then fundamentally, and maybe you don't need to just link it to the concept of an obesity epidemic, but maybe, yeah, just an epidemic in general. Why is, why is the term epidemic sometimes a misleading way to, to, to describe the, uh, the historical evolution and, and, and social distribution of something like, like overweight and obesity, but maybe also in the, in the current COVID crisis, you know, kind of what, what, what makes a notion of an epidemic as this thing that is indiscriminate can potentially affect everyone. Um, in what sense is that kind of maybe not the most appropriate term to think about, um, yeah, the current situation. Yes. Well, that leaves uh, students, I think, with a lot to chew on. With a lot to chew <laughs> so, on, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> so it's also, it links back quite nicely to a number of other papers. I think particularly the paper by Lamont and colleagues, um, which also discusses um, stigmatization on the basis of weight as one of the pa pathways to inequality. So this is something that, that was discussed in the second episode of the podcast. Uh, but also the question how it how this sort of differs and is similar to other forms of cultural distinction that we've talked to before. I think that would be something else that maybe comes up again. Uh, uh, so plenty of things to talk about. Uh, so we are moving to the end of uh, this very interesting conversation. Final question. What can you let go this week? After mm -hmm. this conversation, after rereading these things, what is the thing that will stay with you? Well, I think for me, the most important element is that, that you know, when you think about an aspect of everyday life that you, you generally don't perceive as readily linked to social and class inequality, maybe remember that, that you know, there is not only room, but maybe also a very real need for a sociological approach to issues of, of, of body weight, physical appearance, weight management, physical control, um, in a domain that, that remains dominated by psychologists, epidemiologists, health professionals, even biologists, you know, to show that, you know, sociologists have a role to play here, have us something to teach uh, about how bodies work, how bodies look, how we, we care for bodies, to kind of show that at the end of the day, bodies are much more open to, to the kind of class environments in which they they grow up, you know, and that in a, on the one hand, this is kind of less fatalistic than a lot of biological theories, which say, well, our bodies are innate. Some of us are just, are just lucky. Others are just, you know, drew the, the short straw in, in, in genetic terms. So to, to show that these, you know, that these things can be changed, that, that, that they're open to kind of social influences, but at the same time that this depends on a whole lot more than just individual willpower, individual self-discipline that, you know, if you, if you want to change bodies, if you want to kind of, you know, um, attain a certain type of body, there's very real social conditions that need to be, to be met. And until those conditions can be met, um, yeah, changing bodies in either direction might be, um, might be slightly more difficult. So yeah, there is room for a sociology of the, of the body. And as sociologists, we can be slightly more imperialistic about these things. Yeah, <laughs> yes, for more sociological imperialism. Well, I agree with that, yes, certainly. Uh, so what I can't let go really is the, the 
the central sort of theme in all these readings that morality is so central to social inequality. And I think this is something that the traditional sort of cultural sociology, which focuses on arts and cultural consumption, tends to be a little evasive about. So then it's really about good taste. And that's also because I think Bourdieu in, in Distinction, which is like the key text in most of the things we've discussed so far, is very dismissive of morality. So it's really like something not to be taken seriously and really high high art is without morality. But I think in the everyday boundary drawing and the everyday understanding of cultural worth, so who's better, who's who's uh, worth talking to, who's like me, who's not like me, I think it's really morality that really anchors many of these things. And that when we judge people on the basis of whatever their cultural taste, but also what they look like, how they dress, then it's also, it has a very strong moral component. So we tend to think this is, if we think something is nice or interesting or beautiful or innovative or something worth pursuing, there is always sort of a statement on, on a moral component or whether this is good, whether this person is good or bad, whether this sh should be stigmatized, whether we should, you know, try to become like these persons or try to avoid them. So there are many sort of consequences and all of this has a strong moral undertone. And I think all our social relations are really are um, saturated with morality mm -hmm. in this respect. Absolutely. And you can't really understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think from the get-go, so you even six-year-olds yeah. latch on to that. So it's from the beginning that these issues are moral. They 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 detect certain differences between classes because they immediately see those in moral terms. You know, like they that person dresses, he's not nice, he's not, you know, he yells, he's he's not nice to his children. They kind of, you know, like as you say, like this it's imbued with moral qualities from the beginning. And I think that's quite interesting too. Yeah, I think it's interesting to it's also further. it's also a little disheartening, right? I mean it's really I mean yeah, if looking to, I mean, it's it's one thing to say, you know, I, I prefer people who like the same music that I do, which is, you know, sounds nice and not particularly horrible. But if you sort of start digging, and I think this becomes much more clear when you talk about eating and bodies, when you start digging, it's actually there is an undercurrent that is really, that is um, a more unpleasant. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Professor Dieter van der Broek, for joining us from thank Brussels. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us today and I hope to 